This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, as you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. All right, we are all recording, so good to go. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. you got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, tonight, very special night, it's snowing here in Denver, which is one, it's been snowing a couple times now, two, uh, we've got a, a, an awesome guest on for you today, and we're, we're going to be talking, uh, I would say, a different part of the wild food spectrum, as always, we like to give you as much variety in the world of wild food as possible. So today we're going to be chatting a little bit about foraging, uh, a lot about foraging in the Rocky Mountain region, but uh, I think that can expand across across the, the, the North American continent, hopefully. We'll see. I may be completely wrong. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll go ahead and run through some news. And uh, I've got a, actually a good amount of news because this is the first podcast of 2022. So uh, we've been very, very busy here over the last, I would say, six months, you think, Colin? Yeah. We've been kind of putting plans forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we've got some, some big things to announce. Uh, um. I won't tell you about my hunting. I'll save that for the next episode where we catch up on that. But so on the 2nd of January, we launched our, our full semester of spring cooking classes. So that's going to multiply a little bit, but we've got the entire schedule available. And so what we're doing is we're doing it all virtual. And uh, that allows all of our wild game chefs from all over the U.S. to connect uh, with, with you via uh, Zoom. Uh, I think is the platform we're using. And uh, there's various topics, everything from 
uh, wild edibles to uh, game meat to fowl to fish, all that stuff there. So you can go through and you can see the full calendar. I will be adding some classes here towards the end of the month to the February, March, and April. But uh, that's what we have right now. It's running about every two weeks. The classes are about $25. Uh, once, you get, once you pay for the class, you maintain access to it so you can always go back and reference it. So when you sign up, you get an email of the ingredients list. And then the day of the event, you log in, boom, you're in the class live with the instructor. You get very hands-on attention. We cap the classes at 20 people so that everybody can just uh, relax and chat. But uh, it's a very, very fun thing to do. We did it some last year, and if you haven't checked it out, do so. Um, also, probably the bit it, second biggest bit of news is that the um, in March, we will be releasing the first edition of the Harvesting Nature magazine. So this magazine is going to be uh, all-encompassing of the wild food world. So what you see on our website just amplified and very polished. So what we're looking for though is not, we're not going to be displaying like big epic trips to far off places around the world. We're writing stories about what you are doing. We're writing stories for the everyday hunter, angler, forager, uh, home chef, whoever. We're going to include recipes. We're going to have some featured stories. We're going to talk about hunting. We're going to talk about fishing. We're going to talk about foraging. Uh, we're going to have some how-to sections in there, some gear review. But it, it's not going to be things that are crazy out of this world. It's going to be stuff that you can use, stuff that you can reference. And so we're going to release that digitally, and then we're going to have a print-on-demand option. But those two uh, abilities there will allow you as the listener to uh, read up on what's going on and we'll release those on a quarterly basis so we're going to do four per year and then uh, they'll be available as I said digitally we'll have them on our website as well as probably I think three of the top uh, magazine publishing websites so if you already subscribed or are a member of some of those programs you might be able to quickly uh, add in the magazine once it's released but Stay tuned on social media. That that will come more there. Uh, and probably the third bit of news I have is in February, some point, uh, we're going to be releasing our first of several spice blends. And uh, we're really excited about this. We're going to be doing a, a big game blend, and it's uh, it's really awesome. It's uh, I think the way I coined it, it's perfect for anything with hoof or hide. No, horns, hooves, or hide. There we go. So uh, it, it's an all-encompassing one uh, that, that will be good for just about any red meat. So uh, keep an eye out for that. That will be coming up. And then, as always, for this podcast, uh, we do offer uh, reviews for hats. So we, we actually recently had one. Let me go ahead and read it real quick. And... This is, is good. So what the reviews for hats entails is is that if you go on to whatever podcast platform you listen to, if they have a review feature, or you can go down into our show notes and you click uh, review the podcast, you do it and uh, leave a five-star written review, and uh, it gives us your username. What we do is we read them here on the show, and then uh, after that, once you hear your name announced, you go over to our website and uh, pick a hat out that you like off our website, and then you uh, you you uh, email us what's cooking at harvestingnature.com is our email, and uh, send us the hat you like and your address, and say hey, it was me that wrote the review, and uh, you know, give me a little proof of some sort, and then boom, I'll send you a hat. 
it'll, uh, it'll be a great deal. So this review here, great learning slash cooking style. Over the years of hunting wild game and eating wild game and wild plants, I've had so many people tell me this or that is gross and don't eat that. And then one day I tried something that people said I should shoot it and toss it in the trash. And so instead, I shot it and cooked it. I found out how wrong those people were. I kicked myself for not trying it sooner. I love how this show teaches you new ways to try food that you may have never thought of before. And try something again that you may have not liked the first time. Thank you for the fantastic show. Keep it up. And that's from uh, Smokey's Little Bear over on Apple's podcast. Thank you for the review. Like we, we love seeing the feedback coming in. It's it's really awesome to hear. It keeps us keeps our heart pounding late in the night when we're up editing podcasts. So uh, we appreciate that. But uh, I think that's all the news I have. Whew, it was a lot. Anyway, I'll go over to Colin. Colin, you have uh, any updates for us? Uh, no, nothing about anything coming out. I think you pretty much covered all of it. Sounds like a lot of exciting stuff that we have coming up. Uh, as far as hunting here, uh, we're just kind of in the middle of goose and duck season. Actually, I think goose is on hold until the end of January, then it starts back up. Uh, but ducks are still going strong. Nice. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Just looking for more opportunities. The uh, applications application window is out right now for Oregon hunting, so I'm going through all that, trying to weigh my options, see which one's best. Um, looking to get into some archery this year, too. So trying to decide between doing the archery hunts uh, for elk or deer and then doing the rifle hunts because uh, you can't do both here. So, yeah, hopefully that works out for me this year and can take some more animals. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will go ahead and introduce our guest now. Uh, she has a wealth of knowledge about harvesting food from the wild, and she has spent more than a decade studying plants in and foraging in the Rocky Mountain region. Uh, she, she founded the blog Wild Food Girl in 2010, and from 2013 to 2015, published a digital magazine called Wild Edible Notebook. She has a background in education and teaches courses on edible, medicinal, and tool craft plant identification. Erica Davis, welcome to the Wild Fishing Game podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, for for joining us. And for those out there that don't know, uh, Erica and I uh, share the same home state right now. Well, we're both residing here in, in sunny Colorado, I guess snowy Colorado, today. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. How's the, how has the snow been up, up for you? Yeah, so I live at 10,000 feet um, in Fairplay, Colorado. And, yeah, the last week we've gotten uh, quite a, about three feet of snow. So we we're catching oh, wow. up to where we should have been. And it's really yeah. a winter wonderland, a windy winter wonderland, but just how, wonderful. I I heard some crazy predictions on the wind today. Uh, is it is it true to that prediction? Well, nothing. No trees have blown over. So that's good. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, well, if you could, uh, so the audience we can get to know you a little better. If you could tell us where you're from and and how you got introduced to the outdoors. Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in Connecticut, and I went to school in upstate New York. Um, and, you know, I was introduced to the wild at a pretty young age. My father loved to take us on hiking trips. Um, we lived next to a big parcel of land, about a 1,000 acres. And, 
you know, there were historic sites back there and a bobcat cave and interesting plants. Oh, cool. And I honestly spent most of my free time out there through high school until I moved away. So, um, yeah. That's awesome. Also went fishing a lot on Long Island Sound with my dad and summer camp backpacking trips, canoe trips, things like that. Oh, man. You really got into the, the great outdoors. <laughs> what part, of, yeah, what part yeah. of Connecticut are you from? Yeah, a um, little town called Essex. It's right on the mouth of the Connecticut River, so okay. it's close to Long Island Sound, you know. Yeah, I went to school in New London. So. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, okay, small world, yeah. small state. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so how did you get started with foraging? Was it sort of the same gateway of just being out and kind of trying things? Yeah, no, I have to credit my uncle for that. My uncle had the book Stalking the Wild Asparagus by Yule Gibbons, who is kind of considered the, the father of modern foraging, I guess. And uh, so my uncle was very interested in eating wild plants, and whenever he would come to visit, he would drag my sister and I along and have us taste things. <laughs> you know, so I think, Ooh, you know, I was really fascinated as a kid because... <laughs> I know. Well, there there were, yeah, <laughs> a couple of iffy things. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just was so taken by the idea that food could be in the wild. I mean, I previously mm-hmm. thought it was from the grocery store or a garden, you know. Um, so. It, it, it is something magical. I was thinking back, uh, just as you mentioned, it, to kind of going out with my, my grandfather was probably one of the biggest outdoor influences on me, and we would go out and, like, uh, picking wild onions. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I'm from Oklahoma, and uh, I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation there, and we have uh, – we do, like, eggs and wild onion is one of our kind of traditional dishes, and uh, we would always go pick wild onions, and that was – oh, that was fun. That That's awesome. You know, I have a friend um, in the Navajo Nation who I was just speaking with yesterday, and she was talking about harvesting wild onions, and she can't wait for the wild onions to be back, and she mm-hmm. makes she makes a gravy with them. So I, Really? Yeah, I hope to try it Ooh. sometime. Yeah, I would like to try that as well. If you get the recipe, please let me know. Okay. So, um, so in, in the introduction, I, I highlighted uh, that, that you really – um, focus a lot on edible, medicinal, and tool craft plant identification. Can you kind of break down what those three categories uh, mean? Sure. And and just for a little background, you know, the reason I uh, have that explained on my website is that I teach a community college course called Survival Plants. And, okay. and that class was invented by uh, a pretty famous Colorado foraging teacher named Cattail Bob Seebeck. And so... I follow his curriculum. He is a master of edible, medicinal, and tool craft plants. And I've, mm-hmm. I've learned enough of those to teach them in the class. Um, but I will admit I'm more, I have more expertise in edible wild plants. But that okay. said, I mean, plant identification is plant identification. So um, some plants have more than one use. You know, there's a plant called Oregon Grape that's common in Colorado and throughout the Pacific Northwest that has edible berries, but Mm -hmm. also the roots are strong medicinal to antibiotics, um, antibiotic, antimicrobial, good for an infection if you're out in the wild, um, active against strep. So uh, some, some plants have multiple uses and then some plants are 
more, uh, you know, just fall into one use category. Huh. Okay. I guess that's, yeah, that's a great explanation. Um, I do, I do have, uh, on the Oregon grapes, I want to talk about those a little okay. bit later because I saw one of your most recent posts, um, and we can get into that. So one fun thing that we always like to ask uh, our, our guests, and this is just a fun question, is is uh, and think along the lines of wild food, is, is what's in your refrigerator, freezer, storage area that, that's something that you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, because it can be a really long list. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, in the fridge currently, I have some pickles that I made out of a plant called Rocky Mountain Bee Plant, and uh, I used the immature pods, the immature seed pods to make some pickles, and so those came out interesting, a little strong, but I'm, I am kind of excited. I'm, I've been looking for ways to use that plant because I know it's edible, but it does have a strong flavor. Um, I also, in the fridge, have a half bag of, a half-eaten bag of dandelions that I thawed out, and uh, I'm frankly really looking forward to eating the second half of that bag tomorrow morning as fried greens with eggs. Oh, I love that. That's that's what I do with my mustard greens that I grow. I love mustard greens and eggs. I made some some dandelion jam last year when I first got to Oregon, and it turned out pretty good. It's a different taste. It's not bad at all. It was very good. It's like a, I mean, it kind of tastes like how you'd expect a flower to taste, but in jam. It was nice. Yeah, so use the flowers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I think that tastes... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like dandelion jam tastes a little like sunshine. Yeah, it was like a... It's huh. a I mean, it's honestly a good way to describe it. It's kind of like a... It's like a <laughs> sweet but bitter at the same time, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just kind of tastes like like a summer day in a weird way. <laughs> like it's kind of what it reminds you yeah, of. Nice. Yeah, it was very good. It's fun to make too. Nice oh. to pull that out in winter. I'll have to I'll have to try that out. I haven't um I haven't used or I haven't used dandelion to make jam. I recently made uh some smoked jalapeno and prickly pear jam, which uh mm. I actually call Colin got yep, it. I, I got it yesterday, yeah. I haven't opened it yet, but I'm I'm eagerly awaiting it. It's it's a it's a good one. It's um the way that I made it, um I I didn't include a lot of sugar, so it's not super, super sweet and the jalapeno flavor is very, very faint and not spicy at all. But it's just oh it's just so it's good. It's got a little tart to it as well from the lemon juice that I added. And oh man, I enjoyed it. But uh I hope you do as well. Um so as you think about uh we discussed sort of dandelions uh, in the meal. Unless you have another meal you're looking forward to other than dandelion. Well, okay. I could tell you. I, I definitely, if you wanted a longer answer about what's in my freezer, I mean. Sure. I could, I could, you know, these are the things that I can cook with. Um, over the winter, you know, I, in addition to the, dan- you know, a lot of greens that I blanch and freeze like mm-hmm. dandelion and wild mustards and yucca petals. Um Ooh. Yeah, and then some kind of more substantial vegetables like wild asparagus or cattail flower heads, which I really like. Um, They're the immature flower heads of cattails. So before they turn into the big sausage-looking fluff Uh head, you know, when they're green and kind of still ensconced in leaves, 
Okay. Um, if you clip those, you can you can peel back the leaves and steam the the flower the flowers, and then you they call them cattail on a on the cob because they have a little central core, and you peel off the cattail flowers with a fork. Um, so I have those. Those are good in eggs for me. I like really. Them. Um, we're we're very egg centric tonight. Yeah, I have fruits and berries. I have service berries, currants and gooseberries, wild grapes, frozen plums, um, acorn oh, wow. flower. That Ooh. honestly, I got those acorns in the Northeast. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. That that is uh, quite the freezer. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. So, um, I, I'm trying to think of being new to the Rocky Mountains, and you named off several berries. How many of those types of berries would you find here compared to other parts of the U.S.? Sure. Um, gosh, let's see. Actually, all of those berries are found. Uh, you know. Found in the Rockies, found in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, found across the country into the eastern woodlands. You know, service, there are many different species of service berries as well as currants and gooseberries. So mm -hmm. you might find different species in different regions, but there are still edible berries. Um, yeah, pretty widespread for all of those and wild grapes, honestly, So and wild plums. So aside from thinking about like jams and jellies, what what would be a good use of those berries that that you would that you would do? Sure. I mean, you know, it's funny because I've been foraging for a lot of years and I tend to gravitate towards the plants that I eat often and regularly mm -hmm. in food that my husband will eat, you know. <laughs> um so, you know, the service berries have become my frozen berry of choice to throw into a hot cereal. And okay. I pretty much have it have them like that every day. I've I've made chutneys, I've made jams. I always come back to throw them in the cereal. Okay. <laughs> uh, the plums, you know, plums can the wild plums can have a pretty bitter um, skin. So okay. if you're making a jam or a jelly, you usually remove the skin. But my friend taught me to make a ketchup out of wild plums, and so really? I take that wild plum puree. Yeah, and you know ketchup is an old-time recipe that used to be made with a lot of, like, baking spices, like like um, cinnamon and nutmeg and allspice mm -hmm. and, you know, brown sugar and so forth. So this is – it's almost like a – we call it Christmas ketchup. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, but – but it's good. It's that's what I use most of my wild plums for, wild plum ketchup. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I really like that idea. I, I tried. I, I made a ketchup. I decided one day because my daughter, when she was younger, she's she's nine now. When she was probably, uh, I would say four or five, she was like obsessed with ketchup. But like okay. ketchup out of the bottle, grocery store, and I was like, you know what? There's so much sugar. There's all this. We oh, tried yeah. the like sugar-free ones. I was like. I'm making a ketchup, homemade ketchup, and she's going to love it. And so I made this ketchup, and I put a little curry powder in there, and I put a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, you know, apple cider vinegar, and I went through the whole gamut, and I got it, and she's like, I don't like this, Dad. <laughs> yeah. I was like, come on. And I was like, well, we're not buying another ketchup until 
this ketchup is eaten, and uh, I, my wife overruled me because she also did not like it. But oh, no. <laughs> when we moved here to to Denver, I actually took I had a, a mason jar, like a pint jar of it, in the freezer still, and I took it out and I held it up and exclamated, "This is after several years!" And I was like, "We're not buying any more ketchup till we eat this one." And everybody got a kick out of it. But uh, the wild plum may be a hit though, especially with the, yeah. the Christmas ketchup. <laughs> yeah, I you know I try not to sweeten it too much, but it mm-hmm. it can be quite tart. I've kind of been growing my taste for less sweet things, yeah. but I don't know the family might want it a little sweeter than I eat it. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean that's I, I took the same stance with that prickly pear jam, and and they seem to enjoy that, and it's not not as sweet. So we'll we'll see. So moving outside of uh, talking about berries, looking at foraging and wild edibles in the Rocky Mountains, how does it sort of compare to the rest of North America? Like where are their delineation lines and kind of what what are the delineation lines? What are the habitat changes? Sure. Okay. So, you know, and, and with Colorado at its epicenter, right, so I'm most familiar with the southern Rockies, mm-hmm. you know, um, starting in Colorado. But you know, we are really at a crossroads of a multiple different biomes. So there are a lot of interesting varieties of plants that can be found depending where you, which way you head, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have the mountains. Obviously, when you head up in elevation, um, you get, you know, you get the aspens and then you get the conifers and then you get above tree line. Um but then we also have the prairie, which is a unique biome. You know, in, in, in Colorado, we have the short grass prairie. And as you head east, you get into the mixed grass prairie and the tall grass prairie. You know, and that's where a lot of the big, you know, corn and soy farms are. Mm-hmm. Like every inch of farmland was farmed because it was really rich soil. And there isn't much native tall grass prairie left. But, you know, heading heading east continue east and you're going to hit the forest edge and bam you're in the eastern woodlands all the giant deciduous trees and so the eastern woodlands um uh tend to have more acidic richer soils mm-hmm. and plants can grow really lush there and you can get large quantities of what you're foraging and things are a little sparser across the prairie and especially the Shortgrass prairie as you head towards the Rocky Mountain foothills and the Rockies. Um, but because we have so many biomes, you have a lot of op- uh, options. So the one that I didn't mention yet is if you head south and east, then you get the whole desert southwest with the pinion yeah. pines and uh, the yucca and and some of the weeds that, you know, the non-native weeds that are now in in those areas as well. Nice. Yeah, it's... Um it's very so earlier when you were talking when we were talking about uh some of the berries and you mentioned they're commonly found a lot in the Pacific Northwest and the Rockies is that very common for to kind of share that that kind of crescent shape of of population yeah i'm so glad you asked that because i actually did want to mention that so like yeah so the rockies you know up in the mountains our flora that occurs here tends to also occur you know, up the band of the Rockies and in the northernmost regions of the U.S. and Canada. 
and then also in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, granted, there are some plants that are found in Colorado that are not found in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. but there is some overlap um, with the mountain species. And there's overlap with the prairie species as you follow the prairie from north Texas, north all the way into Canada. So, and then, you know, our Rocky Mountain... Uh, biome, you know, elements of which can be found up in Canada and the Pacific Northwest. Some of those plants are also found circumboreal around the world in temperate forests. Okay. Yeah, or related, or closely related plants. Yeah, okay. Similarly, that's what I was going to ask. Would they be the same or, or slightly related? <laughs> I've got to ask the taxonomist that. <laughs> there are debates right. about that. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So I see uh, – I did some browsing on your, your website, uh, which for those that would like to know, it's wildfoodgirl.com. That's the website there. And uh, uh, you're mostly divided into spring, summer, and fall, which seems very appropriate as in different plants are doing different things during those seasons. Um, what, what sort of plants do you gravitate at different points of the year? Sure. Um, you know, the general foraging calendar, let's say starting in spring, spring is a good time to dig roots, um, mm -hmm. and it's also a good time for fresh greens. You get that riot of green growth in spring. So the dandelions are coming up. A whole bunch of different species of wild mustards are coming up, edible wild mustards, um, stinging nettles, uh, uh, aspar wild asparagus. You know, um, so I'd say spring is roots and greens. And then, you know, summer there's a bit of a lull, but um, there's still vegetables to be found. Like, if you're, are you familiar with the plant salsify? I'm not. Yeah, what? also called oyster plant or goat's beard. Hmm. I you think know, I've heard it referred to as goat's beard. Yeah, it makes the big puff heads that look like dandelions, but they're huge. Mm -hmm. Can you picture okay. it? Like, yeah, 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 yep. Yeah, and that plant offers quite a number of different good vegetables. But in spring, you know, you'd be digging the roots or you'd be eating the greens, and then it sends up a flowering stalk. You can eat that. And then it starts making flower buds, and those are a really easy portion to gather that are quite tasty um, cooked, just a nice cooked vegetable. So... Yeah, um, well, just going through the list, summer, so shoot vegetables, stalks, thistle stalks, uh, lamb's quarter, wild mint, just to name a few. So so talking about the stalks, and I've always wondered this, and, and is it 
when you go from spring to summer and then fall, I'm guessing the later in the year, the the more uh, or the less tender those stalks would be. Is there like a hard stopping point where you're like, ah, or any kind of like seasonal indication where you're like, maybe I shouldn't? Yeah, bother? I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess, sure, most of those, you're absolutely right that the stock, a lot of the stock vegetables get tough later in the season and then no they don't make a good food you've got to spit out the fibers if you try to chew them you know mm. but um you know the the period of rapid growth is when you want to get a stalk vegetable so like when the thistles just start shooting up the stalk but before any flower buds or flowers develop and then you can further tell by bending it i mean with thistles okay. you want some gloves but you know bend it and if it's bendable, it's that bend point that you're going for. Further down the plant, if it's tough, you don't want you don't want to pick that part. It's just like when you're picking asparagus, you know, similar yeah. thing. Yeah. You're looking for that bend point. Um, okay. Yeah, but once once the weather changes to hotter in summer, a lot of those stock vegetables are done. Except in Colorado or anywhere abutting mountains, you could just go up in elevation and oh, find them at see. a lower stage of growth. I did I did find that interesting when I was here uh early in the summer and people were still harvesting like morel mushrooms like up at like 10,000 yeah. feet uh very very late in the year and I was very surprised and I was like wow that's that's uh and then it clicked and I was like yeah obviously there's going to be a big temperature difference uh between down here you know on on the plains and then then going up so yeah yeah you can follow a lot of wild vegetables and mushrooms up the mountain as the season progresses. And the other thing you can do is look at different aspects of the mountain. So mm -hmm. a plant might be flowering on the south-facing slope, but you wanted to gather the buds, so you head towards the north-facing slope, hmm. and the plants at the same elevation might just be in bud there. So there's a lot of – we get a long foraging season for that reason. Like, you don't – easily miss something because you could move yeah. around yeah huh. that's that's actually really good and it leads me to think or to wonder if as we talk about sort of like historical human migration patterns if you look at people moving aside from the weather being a factor to move up and down in elevation but also food food availability uh you know i, I wonder and, and please if you have any insight on that well I, I mean, I guess we do know that indigenous people in this region traveled from resource mm -hmm. to resource. So um, that's maybe about all I can add on that. Yeah. But, you know, like they might be in pinion pine country, during, you know, to collect the, the pinions in fall. But, you know, earlier in summer, they, they might move to a camp um, where there are service berries and choke cherries, you know, a region that's rich in berries. Ooh. So. I, I'm actually glad you just mentioned uh, pinions because I saw um, – I think it was a post you made recently on social media about pinion nut milk. And I was wondering, could we talk about that for just a little bit? Yeah, sure. And just, just so everybody who's listening knows, you know, pinions or pinones, um, those are native trees in the desert southwest and all the way to California and mm -hmm. that and south into Mexico where there are many different species of pinion pines but you know they, they make pine nuts the pinions are pine nuts 
And uh, what we are able to buy at the grocery store are imported. But mm-hmm. we have millions of acres of pinions here in the western U.S. So, um, yeah, you know, that pinion nut milk that I made is because I, I love pinions. And I love gathering them, and I kind of have a lot uh, stored up. And they're pretty painstaking to open, you know, to, to, sort, to sort the good ones and to open them. Um, so I don't tend to open large batches of pinions. I'm not okay. that good at opening them. My, my friend in the Navajo Nation is much better at it than I am, um, and I hope to learn from her. But so I usually eat them just out of hand as snacks because you could pop it in your mouth. They have soft shells. This, these species have soft shells, and you can you know work off the shell like a sunflower seed, and you can eat them one after another like a oh. snack. Yeah, but it, I was the pinion nut milk was my attempt to mass process them in a way that wasn't so painful, <laughs> okay. and it worked out pretty well, honestly. That's um, good. If- how would you describe the flavor? Well, I have to say, because that was just my first attempt. Okay. And so, and I was a little lazy about washing them. Like, I <laughs> I didn't pull out the pine needles before. I washed them with baking soda and water, but I didn't pull out the pine needles first. And the okay. pine needles had a lot of pitch on them. And so ah. I ended up with some pitch in my pinion milk, and the pitch made it a little bitter. So I want to try it again, cleaning the batch better, and see if it comes out bitter or not. I mean, but the the flavor of the pinions is just just rich and lovely, like like pine nuts in a pesto. Ooh, you know? I think I think that's one to try as well. We we do um, we also make our own nut milk here uh, in my house. We typically use almonds, but I don't always like to use almonds, and I actually prefer pecans. So, uh, as I told you earlier, I grew up in in the southeast part of the U.S., so I'm I'm very, very fond of pecans, and uh, I really love the pecan milk. So, uh, I I would be interested to try the the pinion nut as well, and I imagine, yeah, I may may have to give it a go after getting out and trying my hand at foraging some. So, what was the species that you're, you're looking for for that? Sure. Um, so I'm experienced with two species. You know, here in Colorado, we have Pinus edulis, which is the two-needle pinion, and that just means that each um, bundle of needles that mm-hmm. attaches to the branches is in, in two, in sets of two. And our, you know, these this species of pinion uh, extends down into New Mexico and west into Arizona and Utah, and then there's a, there's a line where another species becomes prevalent further west, which is Pinus monophylla, which has just one needle. Um, And so our local ones are higher in fat, so some people prefer them because they're quite rich Mm -hmm. and buttery. And then, but I also love those, uh, people call them Nevada pinions, the ones that are further west. I love those too because they make larger seeds and they're kind of starchy. And I, I really, really um, enjoy those as well. Have you heard of anybody making a, a flower or anything out of them? Mm, I guess off the, I guess off the top of my head, I haven't heard of that. But I hmm. don't think it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I've read about you know them being ground up in kind uh-huh. of, a, I, you know, 
uh, by indigenous peoples into kind of a, uh, I guess you would throw it into a soup or mm-hmm. you would make it into sort of a porridge. Um, so I guess it becomes almost flour-like when you do that to yeah, have I, a thickener. I was trying to think, I forget if it's pinion nuts or maybe acorns. I'm getting mixed up with kind of a cake dried out in the sun, like ground and then formed into some sort of patty with water and then dried to make a cake. And I, I, th- I think, I can't remember if it's pinion nuts or acorn or both. Who knows? Um, uh, I'm sure there's there could be some crossing between the two uh, sure. for sure. Um so as we go back to sort of talking, looping back around to the seasonal talk here, uh, I did notice there's there's not a winter section. And yeah. as we just discussed, the uh, <laughs> the snow that you have at your house and the snow that I'm getting at my house, I could take a guess as to why, but uh, I, I wanted to ask, um, and just, uh, is there foraging available in the winter? Yeah, so, and, and you know, just to, as, as, about the way that I've organized those posts, that was a pretty recent development for me on the website <laughs> to put the fall, spring, and summer organization just to help people navigate a little more easily mm-hmm. to the posts. And when I got to winter, I just didn't have as many posts. So <laughs> I, I thought, I'll put a winter section up later after I write a few posts. But um, And, in fact, the, the, the chewing gum, the um, yeah. pine resin chewing gum was one of my winter posts. But, there, yeah, there's foraging in winter. There's just not as much, you know. Um, I definitely like to make use of conifer needles for tea or to flavor vinegar or to dry and grind up to make a – conifer needle salt, um, and, th- and those are pretty easily foraged in winter. There's rose hips stay dried was, on the... I was about to say, we, we you and I chatted briefly on Facebook about the, the rose hips, because <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I found it very curious, curi- or I was curious about it uh, as I, I've been out, so I've been out hunting quite a bit, and I've been in uh, on the plains side, uh, and I just wanted to know like, uh, if I run across it. Where, where would be a good place if I'm wandering? So, uh, yeah, thanks. well, on the plains, I mean, there are definitely uh, rose species on the plains. Um, mm-hmm. And I would aim towards, like, the moister areas, the depressions. You tend yeah. to see roses um, along those in the plains. Um, but if you're heading higher in elevation, you know, they like aspen groves. They, you know, they, they like lodgepole pine forest they're pretty widespread there's a lot of different species um yeah. in a, in a, is it a mix of of natives and i'm guessing someplace there are some invasive rose species or is it mainly yeah. native so i've seen more invasive rose species further east like in the eastern woodlands um mm-hmm. i have seen some non-natives in colorado but they tend to be leftover plantings from an old homestead on a location that obviously was an old homestead, I haven't seen um, too much in the way of roses invading native habitats, at least here sure. in Colorado. I, I yeah. think that's – yeah, maybe I miss I misspoke in my uh, uh, terminology of invasives versus non-natives because invasive being something that would invade and take over and non-natives being something that's just here but not harmful. So – uh, sorry if there's any confusion. Anybody listening on those two terms? Um, I think it's an important distinction, and and, and yeah. good of you to mention it. I mean, you certainly can forage the rose mm-hmm. bushes in the landscaping. Oh yeah. You know, 
Just, I mean, as long as they're not sprayed with, with uh, pesticides, of course. We we have it at my work. There's a they've got it's a native garden of all these different plants, and they're all labeled. And I spent, uh, you know, I think about an hour one day walking around, and I was googling all the the names of the plants, and I was like, is this edible? Is this edible? Because I know they they take pretty good care of it, and they don't use a lot of uh, things to treat it with. And I was like. If I find something here, like my coworkers may be peering out the window at me, like snipping little bits of this plant off to take home. That's awesome. It's great that it's identified for you and you can yep. look it up. Like, are you familiar with the website Plants for a Future? Um, no. So it's P F as in Frank A F as in Frank dot org, and you can type in uh, a plant species, and then it gives you. Um, a list of edible and medicinal uses, and they're all cited. So it's, it serves as a place to start your research about a plant if you already know the name of the plant. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, what order the books? What, what was the website one more time? Yeah, um, it's Plants for a Future, and it's uh, P as in, well, just P, F as in Frank, A, F as in Frank, dot org. Sorry, PFAF.org. There you go, PFAF.org. Yeah. Cool. And if you scroll oh, down yeah. the page, you, you scroll down the page and then you put in your scientific name, and then it gives you just a whole list of edible uses. And, you know, if there's only one source cited for a plant, I'd take it with a grain of salt. Like it's mm. maybe was eaten at some point, but maybe it has, you know, the, you're looking for plant, you know, you're looking for a plant that says, you know, this part is edible, and 10 books say so, you know, um, yeah. and and you could order those books from the library, and that's what I do when I'm researching, I'm researching a book, so that's often what I do, is I'll, then I'll order all the sources from the library and read those, but... Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, really good starting place, if you know the that's, name of the book. Yeah, that's a very, uh, that's a very helpful tip. Justin knows how much I love my cool. plant ID apps, so... And oh, yeah. guides, so this is definitely really helpful. Everything in one spot. Oh yeah, good. Does it have mushrooms on cool. it too? I'm just looking really quickly. Uh, not to my okay. knowledge. Not to my knowledge. I, you know, I can recommend one other website um, if uh, if you're into researching plants. And I think Justin, you told me you studied anthropology, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is okay. Um, uh, an ethnobotanist, Daniel Mormons compilation of ethnobotany resources for the West. And so uh, the website is naeb.brit.org. And basically that is a compilation of ethnobotanies that were written, you know, dating back the last 150 years. And so if you type in the scientific name of a plant, it will tell you how different indigenous groups in the West used the plant. Oh wow, this is cool. Yeah, oh, look, that's he's a really got He's got the uh here's my tribe, the Choctaw. Got oh, lots yeah, you of... can sort by tribe. Oh that's yeah, cool. I saw that. That is super Justin's, cool. Uh, great yeah, reference for your your book that you want to make. Yeah. Awesome. I'm I'm always continuously working on a series of uh series of books. Um but this one, yeah, I think would work uh I've been trying to work a lot with some uh, other tribes across the U.S. to to get some some of their like very traditional recipes and kind of 
pair it with some modern cooking techniques to come up with uh, kind of like a traditional play on or a modern play on traditional food. I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of indigenous chefs doing that now, which is very 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 great to see. Um, but this is awesome because I. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, being being someone in the wild food world, this this speaks a lot. So this is so cool. Thank you so much for showing. Oh yeah, you're welcome. I love your project idea. I can't wait to hear what comes of it. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. I'm more just egging him on so that he eventually does it. <laughs> so Good. I do, yeah. Good. It's, it's okay. the work. It's the yeah. They all they all rotate order in my head of which one I get to chip away at next. So um, yeah. it, it's always fun though. It keeps me going. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about some of your recipes. And I mentioned earlier the wild jelly candies which I sounds awesome. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about kind of what went into it and the recipe and, and all that? Sure. So, you know, um, I honestly, you know, a little background because I have had uh, just some health challenges where I've needed to reduce sugar and, mm -hmm. and some other things. So I've been trying to invent recipes that are on my diet, you know. So the jelly candies, you know, I really used to love Turkish delight candies. Have you had those? Uh-huh. Um I have. Yeah, or they're or they're called Greek delights when you're in Greece and they're called Cyprus delights. <laughs> but um yeah, there's these just lovely gelatiny squares, sweet squares with the powdered sugar on them and Usually they're made with gelatin, and I was looking for uh, something else to make them with besides gelatin or cornstarch, mm -hmm. and that led me to a seaweed ingredient called agar agar. And so the jelly candies, off the top of my head, I mean, it was so easy. It was like, so first I took, I already had the wild grape concentrate in the fridge. So, I okay. mean, in the, you know, so what? how I made that was, mashing the wild grapes and, you know, straining the liquid out. And then wild grapes require an extra processing step because they have this irritating substance called tartrate in them. So I had to let it sit for a couple of days and precipitate out the tartrate and pour off that juice. So starting with the really intensely flavored wild grape juice, it was just a matter of adding, it, heating it up and cooking it with the agar agar, you know, I... I think I have the proportions on that post. And then uh, adding yep. a little bit of sweetener, and I use stevia. And, it, it, you know, then you pour it. You know, the original recipe I followed, you poured it, you had you pouring it into gummy bear molds. But I just poured it into the bottom of a, a dish and cut it into squares and rolled it in powdered uh, erythritol, which is <laughs> a sugar substitute. Yeah. Oh, it looks great. Yeah, they're they're fun. They're you know, I'm I'm still playing with them, but uh, they, they're definitely a fun project for sure. And just the little tart too. I like the combination of like the little tart and and some of the sweet. I think it plays very very well together. I'm with you on that. Yeah, the, yeah. Wild grapes have a nice, strong, distinctive flavor. Now these were river grapes, um, foraged in Morrison, Colorado. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 We uh, I grew up. Uh, we would harvest and collect uh, muscadines. Oh, okay. And use those for various things. Um, 
but yeah, whew, mm. this is good. I have to keep my eye out. And when, when, what type of year uh, should I keep out for an eye out for wild grapes? Uh, that's like late summer, late summer, nice. in into fall. I mean, I guess. Yeah, late summer into fall, but they'll stay on the vine um, often even into the snowy season and start to shrivel and still be usable. Okay. Nice. Yeah. You could go and looking how... now. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know about <laughs> I don't know I, about I'm not that. sure either. They might be dried <laughs> out. If you find any left, they might be dried out at this point. I guess I'm not normally in the low country at this time of year. Yeah. A little cold too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, was the other one? The other one you mentioned earlier was the the wild chewing gum. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that. <laughs> that's that's exciting. We, we're very much on like a candy, a candy, and uh, I, I decided to mix it up so they go in like whole dishes or things like yeah, that. It's a like, whole new let's talk about some whole new realm. I'm excited to to hear about all this. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, just to dispel any possible misconceptions, this is not a sweet-tasting chewing gum <laughs> when you chew uh, pine resin. Now, you know, um, I want to say black spruce is what was used in the northern U.S. for gum, but the idea of chewing a plant resin as a sort of a gum is mm -hmm. much older than, you know, this 100-year-old bubble gum in a factory you know that's very very new so it wasn't it was one of the uh was one of the recent uh human remains they found from very long ago it was the the young girl who was a hunter they found her i think with with some hunting tools and then also she had like uh i believe duck or some sort of waterfowl and then they also found a residue of of a uh, some type of sap that they they oh that they uh, hypothesized that she was chewing is like chewing gum, but uh, I, I would have to look at that article. Call maybe you could look at it as we're, we're yeah, chatting. Look it up. I would I would love the name of that article. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the various uh, tree resins that have been and and plant resins that have been chewed like a chewing gum, not necessarily a sweet chewing gum, but something mm -hmm. to chew on, something for that oral fixation. And um, I was first exposed to the idea of tree resins as something you could chew on when I, I traveled to Cyprus in the Mediterranean and I bought something mm. in the store called Cyprus gum. And I opened it up. And I said, this is a plant resin of some sort. Like it cracked in my hands. And so I put it in my mouth. I started chewing and it broke into a million little pieces. And I just kept chewing and it glommed together into this stuff that you could chew like a gum. Um, in Greece, they call them um, chios tears or um, mastic gum. And uh, so then I started looking into what has been chewed here. And, you know, I, up until recent years, you could even buy spruce gum from L.L. Bean. Oh, um, wow. So, yeah, it was a thing. I mean, uh, you know, and so there are some species that do actually make a sweet gum, and I think black spruce is one of them, which okay. we don't have here in Colorado. But we do have um, trees whose resin can be chewed. The big thing is you want to pick off a ball of resin that is hard, like glass cl crack 
hard because if you put a somewhat malleable piece in your mouth, it's going to get really stuck in your teeth. Ah, so, so the harder the better. The harder the better. You want it to break into a million pieces into your mouth, and you want to chew it together gently into a gum. Okay. Um, and while you're doing it, you're spitting out the bad taste <laughs> that that you start with. And this is a little bit, you know, a couple minutes of spitting that happens. And the ethnobotanical accounts that I've read, this uh-huh. is how you do it. <laughs> you know? huh, okay. And, uh, so, and then you get a piece of gum that you could chew, you know. I chew it for an hour, and eventually it starts to kind of be done and want to break into little pieces. But I, I, I've i really tried to get a lot of people into this, and I think people are afraid to chew the resin, or they don't love the flavor. I mean, it's kind of a piney, turpentiny kind yeah. of flavor at first, and then it gets it, a little milder. But I am out of it, and I wish I had more. And so just one last thing. The trees that I've been most successful with out here are pinyon pines, and I've met people who've grown up in families that chew pinyon pine resin. It's a thing. Um, and then lodgepole pines. Yeah, pinyon and lodgepole are my favorites. <laughs> Ooh, so when I go out and get the pinyon nuts for the for the nut milk, I can also get some, some pinyon pine chewing gum. Yeah, look for those <laughs> nodules, those hard yeah. nodules, and just collect a bag of them. Yeah. Huh, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Colin, were you able to find the find the article? Yeah, I think I found one that you're talking about. So it was about a village in Denmark, southern Denmark. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So they actually didn't find human remains, but they found a sticky piece of hardened birch tar, or I'm not sure I pronounce, don't mix up the words, birch pitch, uh, and they were able to extract the DNA genome from that and then find out like what color eyes she had, what color her hair was. Oh, that's she what was it was. Eating, yeah, she was yeah. eating ducks. Oh. Uh, but yeah, it was basically from, a, from birch tar and that she had been chewing. Uh, and it was sealed away under, it says right here, layers of sand and silt for 5,700 years uh, until some scientists came along and found it. So, pretty, yeah, wow. pretty cool. Wow, that, that's not only cool f- because of the gum, but to be able to get DNA from that, yeah. that yeah. is just fascinating. They said it was the first time huh. they were able to get DNA from something other than, hum- DNA of the human genome from something other than human huh. bone. Wow. Wow, that is – thank you for sharing yeah, of course. that. This is cool. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. Well, uh, and, and just a reminder for everyone, we'll we'll take all these links to all the websites that Erica mentioned and, and this article, and we'll throw those all in the show notes too so they're, they're very easily accessible. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember reading that. I was like, what a cool – that's a cool story. Yeah, um, very to kind of reconstruct it and like they they figured out the color of her eyes and and all kinds oh, of yeah. things I mean, as well which I thought was pretty the neat. anthropologic discovery from it is is awesome uh, but just also to like you know we're still eating chewing gum or chewing chewing gum today and they're basically doing the same yeah. thing 5700 years ago so yeah really neat yeah and you, you know those wild chewing gums like you know that also frankincense and myrrh are resins that were chewed and probably are still chewed. 
And so in some of those, they've found antimicrobial properties. So there's this uh, suspicion that chewing the wild resins can help to protect the teeth and maybe even more than that, you know. So yeah, yeah, go ahead. I I was thinking, like, as you look at the evolution, aside from, like, an oral fixation, uh, I've been reading a lot. uh, I forget the name of the book now that I'm reading, but it's essentially it's looking at the evolution of of taste and looking at the five the five tastes that we that we uh, we have and kind of uh, it puts a lot of research together as to why we as humans developed a preference towards one or the other. And the, the section I'm in now talks a lot about uh, flavor differences between like chimpanzees and humans and how uh, uh, chimpanzees tend to have a different spectrum of bitter than we do based on the plants that they go to and it looks at everything of like an evolutionary standpoint. So like why did we start chewing gum? And it's likely, aside from an oral fixation, there was probably some uh, benefit to it, just as you mentioned, initially that was discovered, and through evolution it became a thing that probably created the baseline for the oral fixation. Oh, interesting. Did it specifically mention gum in your book? It it did not. No, it's dealing a lot with plants, but I was just kind of using the same theory to, to... make some assumptions here based on chewing gum but uh yeah it's it's very it's very interesting yeah i think um yeah that that does sound like um it makes sense and i am interested in that topic i'd love to hear the name of that book as well sure yeah i'll uh before we get off here after we wrap up i'll i'll run upstairs and grab it and so i can give you the name thank you yeah yeah so let's uh we're we're running here a little slim on time, but let's talk about one more thing, the dandelion coffee here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so dandelion are you familiar you know, dandelion coffee uh dates back you know, dandelion dandelion coffee is basically you take the roots of the dandelion mm-hmm. and you dry them out and you roast them and grind them up and brew them into a dark beverage that looks like coffee and is reminiscent of coffee, but, of course, doesn't have the caffeine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dandelions, you know, dandelions were historically used for that. They were used for that in the colonial period. Um, but they aren't the only plant that is used for a coffee substitute. So, chicory. You know, yeah, chicory. Yeah, yeah chicory root. I love yeah. chicory coffee. Me too. <laughs> Yeah, so I I like making dandelion coffee. I I keep, you know, when I'm weeding the garden, I just take the roots and I wash them and I could chop them up and leave them to dry and forget about them, and then I have them when I want to roast them and make the coffee. It's pretty straightforward. I I think about we we've talked uh we've each mentioned dandelion in in some different accord here, and it's crazy the culinary history in North America for dandelion, but you don't see it as like a common ingredient as much anymore that people are using. And it just, it blows my mind, like the, what, when the shift happened or why. Well, you know, the common explanation is that dandelions are bitter, mm-hmm. you know, and there's ways to reduce the bitterness. But I think we once had more of a taste for bitterness and our mm-hmm. modern palates have been pretty spoiled by, you know, I mean... 
when you take a plant from the wild and you domesticate it, you're trying to get rid of those harsher flavors. And so mm-hmm. our domesticated plants aren't very bitter and they aren't, you know, they they aren't very strong tasting. You know, in Europe, it, it's interesting because in Northern Europe, dandelions grow, but people are less interested in them. And then in Southern Europe, the Italians love their dandelions. Greeks oh, yeah. love their dandelions. There's a taste for that bitter flavor. So there there can also be differences between, you know, cultural differences between what people prefer, I think, too, that might explain uh, people's lack of interest in dandelions. Uh, you know, for me, I had to figure out how to cook them. And once mm-hmm. I figured out a way that I love, that my husband loves, now we eat them all the time. Yeah, it's so. awesome. I was just using some for a recipe uh, just the other day. Uh, I actually, I was formulating the recipe in my mind and went to spinach and then uh when i was in the grocery store i saw the dandelion and oh, i yeah. was like you know what dandelion it is and i'm glad because it turned out really really good cool cool oh and i see you made ice cream with the uh, with the dandelion coffee yeah yeah dandelion coffee ice cream yeah Oh, that looks so awesome. That was good. It was really good. My husband loves coffee ice cream. I like coffee ice cream, It was almost better than coffee ice cream. (laughs) It was good. Yeah, so you're just, like, taking the the roasted grounds of the dandelion root and infusing the cream and then Mm -hmm. making – I just followed a easy ice cream um, maker recipe. Ooh, we have an ice cream maker. That sounds good. And, you know, in the winter, you could buy dandelion roots from natural grocers if you want to experiment oh, with Oh, really? Yep. We have one. That's my go-to store here in my neighborhood. So do they, uh, I may have to grab they some. they freeze well? Like, could you pick them in the summer and vacuum seal and freeze them and then break them back open? Or do they lose some of their texture and flavor? So, um, I, you know... The only dandelion roots I have frozen, because dandelion roots can also be used as a root vegetable. Okay. So when you're digging dandelion roots, um, dandelion's a perennial. So if it's been around for a long time and the roots are all woody and gnarled and you start cutting into them and they're brown down the middle, those go in the dandelion coffee pile. And if they're like nice and clean and kind of cream-colored through and they're first-year dandelions that popped up in your garden that are big enough to eat and you pull them out and they're nice looking, those are the ones I use for a vegetable. Mm -hmm. And so I've never tried freezing the gnarled ones. I always just dry them for coffee. But I have blanched and frozen dandelion roots um, that I wanted to use for a vegetable, and they do fine in the freezer. Um, Okay. I mean, I usually eat them within a year. Right. Nice. Yeah. But I mean... They also stay for a long time in the crisper in the fridge if you just, you know, they're roots. So, you know, back in the day we would stick them in a root cellar and they would last a long time, (laughs) you know. So you don't necessarily have to freeze them. Okay. um, But you could. You could. Awesome. Well, um, we are unfortunately running out of time. I'm enjoying this conversation. It's such a great conversation. I love it. It's really cool. This is a couple Uh, episodes in a row now that we've had, like, the alternative to, like, the steak dinner. You know, like norm, yeah. we kind of have like nothing that we were like falling to a norm, but a lot of times we have like the the red meat or fish kind of recipes, and lately we've been getting into more with like the soap and you know, the wild plants. And I think I really like it. It's cool. 
I went on a little tangent. There. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> I, no, it's all good. I, I think it's good, and um, you know, I'll, I'll I will proclaim that I'm I'm trying to widen the berth of 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 everything that we're doing and what we're sharing. I mean, I think it's great. There's a lot of knowledge, folks like you, Eric, out there that just have this great wealth of knowledge about wild food, and it's I, I just want to share it with everyone, and so. Uh, well, I'm honored. <laughs> Thank I'm honored you. to be talking with you guys. Yeah. Well, so let's. Uh, you mentioned those two resources online. Uh, what are some of your other favorite resources on foraging? Okay, I could go on for a while, <laughs> but I won't. Um, yeah, my absolute favorite favorite books are the three by Samuel Sayer, um, mm-hmm. and those you know those cover. Uh, a lot of the uh, eastern and central United States, but a lot of those plants are found in the Rockies too. And he just goes into some great depth on how to identify, collect, and use edible wild plants. So those are my top. Um, in Colorado, I like anything by Cattail Bob Seebeck. Uh, those can be a little harder to obtain. So his older book, you'd want to go to the library for that. And his survival plants handbooks that he has published that cover edible and medicinal and toolcraft plants. He uses those to teach his college classes in the front range, and the best way to get your hands on those is to take one of his classes, whether his um, college class or he also does free donation-based classes, and you can find a list of those at survivalplants.com. Okay. So definitely recommend Cattail Bob Seebeck. He's been a mentor to me, as has Sam Thayer. Um, uh, let's see, Foraging the Mountain West by Tom Elpel. Uh, okay. There's Mountain States Foraging by Brianna Wiles, which is probably easiest and least expensive to obtain, covers a lot of plants in a more introductory fashion, but you get a lot of good pictures and uh, basic information. And I think I guess I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no worries. It's good. So, in talking about classes, uh, I saw you have your schedule now online for the spring. Um, yeah, actually, that's last year's schedule. That's still oh, up. last year. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I will be posting a schedule of classes in the spring. I okay. teach a number of classes just here in Fair Play. Most of my class formats are a plant walk for about an hour, and then when I do it on my own property, we can ha- we can pick some of the plants and make them into something. So it's a, oh, cool. Yeah, it's a forage and cook class. And I, um, so I don't know, I'm going to be publishing that schedule in spring. I'll do some up here in Fair Play. I do teach some classes um, down in the front range, some that I set up and some that are for groups that hire me to teach classes. So, yeah, I'll I'll publish it in the spring on my calendar page of the website. And for people that want to get, want to be alerted about the classes once they're published, there is a Colorado Foragers email list at the bottom of that calendar page. And once I put up a class, I email that group so they can know what's going on. Ooh, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to sign up right now. Yay. Because I definitely <laughs> want to come. I want to come uh, visit and take one of the classes. Awesome. You know, I've been debating how many classes I'm setting up this summer just because I've been hard at work at this book, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 30 chapters in. I can I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and oh, I may awesome. be spending a little extra time this summer 
chasing plants, photographing plants, checking mm -hmm. my plant descriptions, and so forth. So it, I may be offering a few less classes than normal this summer. We'll see. That's okay. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I encourage everybody to go uh, go check that out. And I'm I'm looking now that I'm hearing about the book project. I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, <laughs> what What are other good ways for people to connect with you if they have questions uh, or anything like that? Sure. Yeah, you know, especially in the growing season, I'm pretty active on Facebook, and my uh, tag or handle or whatever is just Wild Food Girl. And then on Instagram, I'm pretty new at Instagram, but I, I post there pretty regularly too. And that's wild.food.girl. <laughs> and okay. then um, I do have a, a another email list, my larger email list, that can be joined from any page of my website except the calendar page. And to that group, I email um, – you know, I have my back issues of the Wild Edible Notebook that I've been republishing, and those are 50-page troves of information and photographs and recipes. And so if you join the larger email list, you get access to those as I as I update them. The, the one I'm about to publish is about, um, oh, I went through this obsession with uh, making flour, speaking of flour, making flour, out of various dried fruits, so fruit Ooh. flowers that you can put, you know, in your in your cookies or your baked goods. Um, so that was an interesting issue. You know, I wrote those back in 2014, 15. I've been really liking rereading them. I often feature other writers in them and mm -hmm. uh, other authors, interviews with authors, and and uh, I usually feature two major edible plants um, in each issue. So they're those are those are a fun read if, it, if oh, people cool. like reading. <laughs> I just signed up for that as well because I'm, okay. I'm definitely excited excited for the the uh, the fruit flower. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Sweet. Yeah. Well, um, I think that I think that we unfortunately are out of time. So this is kind of the last uh, the last bit. We give uh, everyone one final shot at a last thought, uh, an alibi, a question, anything you'd like to to leave us or the listeners with. And be it that you're the guest today, uh, I will give you the opportunity to to, to go first. Yeah, I guess. Um People are sometimes intimidated by the idea of foraging and eating edible wild plants. You know, as a society, we've kind of been conditioned to think it's dangerous. And there's a few dangerous plants out there, but there aren't that many. Um, so to learn foraging for someone who's new at it, you really just go one plant at a time. You definitely want to be 100% certain of your identification you don't want to just taste something to see if mm -hmm. it's edible. You want to look at it in a couple of books or, or learn it from an expert. But you only have to learn one at a time and then incorporate that into your cooking. Um, and so it's it's not as daunting as people sometimes think, and it's a lot of fun and good nourishment from the land. Um, yeah, yeah, fun hobby for sure. Absolutely. Sweet. Well, thank you. Colin, you got a last thought? Yeah. When you were mentioning Oregon grapes, and seeing as I live in Oregon, I started looking them up. Yeah. Um, and they reminded me, they look very similar to another berry, Salal. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, and they often grow near right. Salal. So yeah. how do you, what's your, yep. your biggest takeaway for telling the difference between them? And are Salal still good, or are they just kind of like a, uh, a letdown <laughs> compared to the grapes? Sure. So 
I haven't visited Oregon okay. since I and the Pacific Northwest since I became interested in foraging. Um, I've read about salal. I haven't tried it. It is edible. Right. Um, off the top of my head, uh, and I probably could come up with some better distinctions between them. So the salal berries have this kind of pinched, puckered end to the berry. Okay. Um, and then Oregon grape, what I'm calling Oregon grape in Colorado might be called uh, creeping Oregon grape. Okay. In Oregon, where there are several species of Oregon grape, um, Mahonia repens is the creeping one. There's a, a tall bush-like one, and there's uh, yeah, and there's another one, Mahonia nervosa. But all of those can be used similarly. The Oregon grapes have these um, very leaves that are very reminiscent of holly. Okay. So they are. Um, uh, inverted, scalloped, and pointed, and it can be a little bit sharp. Yeah, a little prickly. Um, yeah. So, but off the top of my head, not uh, not having experience with salal, I I, I couldn't um, just come up with more okay. distinctions. But both edible. Yeah. So I have salal in my backyard. You're okay there. Uh, and I oh, okay. double checked it a couple of times, but uh, I heard it can be a little mushy, maybe a little mealy at sometimes. So you kind of have to get past oh. that. But other than that. They don't taste that bad. So this coming this coming summer, I'll definitely uh, try and get into them. Awesome! I'd love to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, the Oregon grapes can be very, very tart. Okay. So they are they are often combined with often they were combined with salal to sweeten them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Very interesting. Well, Erica. Thank you for coming on the show tonight. It, it was an absolute honor chatting with you, and uh, what, what a great rundown of, of wild edibles, uh, you know, kind of a, across across the North American continent here, and uh, specifically in, in the Rocky Mountains. I'm excited to try uh, some of the candy, gum, coffee, all these things coming up here, and uh, to, to get signed up for one of your classes and come, come visit uh, for sure. So uh, thanks very much. And I encourage everybody, like just like Erica mentioned, it, it sometimes seems intimidating, but just get out there and try it. And as long as you're doing it safely and, uh, you know, researching and, and using some of the, the knowledge from the various experts out there to kind of uh, validate your thoughts uh, on, on what's edible and what's not edible, uh, it's something fun. Um, we we had an episode a while back, and the title of it was "Never Go Home Empty-Handed," and it's something every time I think about like hunting and fishing, and with with uh, foraging mixed in there, it's just like you you always get the opportunity to bring something home. You just kind of kind of start to train your eye and think about it uh, from from a different perspective. So, and even myself, I am guilty of not doing that sometimes when I should be. So. Uh, uh, I will say this. Thanks, everybody, for listening tonight. And uh, as always, the show notes will be available online, so the podcast platform that you're listening to, you can scroll down to see those notes. You can always visit our website, harvestinnature.com. These will be listed in the podcast section there. And then uh, make sure you go uh, visit uh, Erica's uh, social media. 
uh, Facebook and Instagram, Wild Food Girl. Look for those. Uh, follow, enjoy the resources there, and uh, as always, make sure you're following Harvesting Nature. And then whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please punch that five star button and uh, leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing wrong, or you know, tell us what we're doing right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lift, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.